such a warm welcome to you all this evening, and hello from Crestone, Colorado. This is Molly Rowan Leach, and it's my pleasure to be here with you this evening. This is the continuum of the restorative justice and social healing in the United States and beyond telecouncil series. And you can find out more about all of the guests that have been previously on this series as well as the upcoming guests and the audio recordings of each of our circles together at mollyrowanpresents.com. I'm just delighted to have everybody here tonight with us. And before I introduce our very special guests, just a few notes about tonight's call. Uh, many of you may know how we move together. Um, the whole idea is to engage the, the circle gathered. That means you and, of course, our special guests and myself. At any time during tonight's council, please press 1 on your keypad, and that alerts me to uh, open up your mic for any comments or questions to engage with the rest of the circle and with our guest speakers. So um, without further ado, I just would like to say a few welcoming and introductory words about our two special guests, Saul Arbess and Penny Joy. And I just have to say, um, in learning a bit more about the, this um, beautiful couple in life and work, I just um, am, am so deeply moved by both of their lives and their lives together in, in restorative justice and in not only peace building in Canada but internationally and the ripples that they've created with their, with their individual and uh, lives together in these areas. Um, Penny Joy, she, she grew up in um, many places actually throughout the world and um, has a deep interest in restorative justice, as does Saul. Um, together, they founded the Victoria Restorative Justice Society. You can find out a lot more about that um, amazing project and community at vrjs.org. That's vrjs.org. And of course, um, they also are very deeply involved not only in the Canadian Department of Peace Initiative, but are also working uh, on the international scope um, to keep, keep the energy alive around implementing international departments of peace in many, many countries. And I know that they both will be speaking to this tonight. Um, Saul is a cultural anthropologist and a futurist dedicated to creating a new architecture of peace in the world. His activism is devoted to building a culture of peace in Canada and abroad in which restorative practices are at its heart. He has worked with Jean Houston, as has Penny actually, for over 30 years and has been trained in NBC, Nonviolent Communication. He's the national co-chair of the Canadian Department of Peace Initiative, which that spanned from 2005 to 2011, and probably present, actually. And um, he says he's working in concert with other countries. Uh, that is, the, the Canadian Department of Peace is working in concert with many countries, including the US, Australia, South Africa, and Japan, to form departments of peace in all nations. There are 12 chapters across Canada. He's also the co-founder and chair of the Global Alliance for Ministries and Departments of Peace, representing 30-plus country initiatives and three countries with ministries of peace. He currently resides in, and works in his hometown of Victoria, which is becoming a city of peace and nonviolence and protecting the wildlands surrounding that city. And I do happen to know that our mutual colleague, James O'Dee, will be visiting Victoria to celebrate uh, this earmark uh, for Victoria as a city of peace later this year. So without further ado, um, just a, I guess a few more words about Penny. I, I'm just amazed, Penny, at your um, the, the, the aspect of your creativity as it applies to peace building. 
you started a documentary film and TV production company called Gumboot Productions. And some of your films, uh, documentaries, include The Spiritual Roots of Restorative Justice and The Art of Compassion. For more information about that production company, Gumboot Productions, please go to gumboot.net. That's G-U-M-B-O-O-T dot net. And finally, the Department of Peace initiative is the departmentofpeace.ca. That's departmentofpeace.ca. Thank you both so much for joining us tonight. And uh, Penny, would you start out with a bit about what brought you to this significant place in our world and times as such a servant, selfless servant of, of peace building and healing and restorative justice. Well, thank you very much, Molly. It's wonderful to have this opportunity. And I'm particularly delighted that this is International Women's Day. So I want to acknowledge, first of all, the amazing women peacemakers and peacekeepers in the world, from women on the front line in conflict zones as unarmed peacekeepers. We just got uh, an email in virtually moments ago about a Canadian called Tiffany Eastham who's just been awarded the Peacekeeper of the Year Award from the Nonviolent Peace Force. So that's, uh, that raises one's spirits. And um, I'd like to also acknowledge the women standing against attempts to suppress them in places like Egypt and Afghanistan and to all those who are keeping peaceful and loving compassion in their families. And then also, I'd like to appreciate the three great 2011 women peace laureates, Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, the president of Liberia, Lima Gaboy, the peace activist from Liberia, and Tuakol Kamen from Yemen. So, aha, atak matakwi asan, all my relations. So, my life has been uh, interestingly chaotic. As you mentioned, I have uh, had colorful traveling life. I was born in the war, in the London Blitz. Apparently there was an unexploded bomb being defused outside the hospital when I arrived. I can't say I remembered it, but I do feel that some of that terror and imminent violence got into my DNA. One of my earliest mm. memories was being taken to my first cinema to see a, a Mickey, Mouse Mickey Mouse cartoon. I maybe was about four. I was excited and happy. Before the film started, there was a, a newsreel, as they used to be. Mother very firmly told me to look around, turn around in my seat, and not turn back until she told me. I didn't mean to look at the screen, but there was a woman behind me with big glasses, and everything was reflected in it. In it, I saw soldiers going into one of the concentration camps. I saw piles of bodies in a big hole and others being tipped in off a wheelbarrow. I didn't know what it was all about, but I believe I picked up the silent horror around me as those images flashed by. I told my mother that I had seen them. Um, I met my father when I was five when he returned from the war. And uh, he, he joined the NAFI, which was the catering arm of the British forces, which all over the world. And we first moved to Malta. Um, religion didn't feature much in my upbringing, so I was confused when I was taken to watch the end of a Good Friday procession in Valletta, where a man chosen to be Christ, who had dragged a cross around the island, fell bleeding in the road, and the crowd stood silent. Massive statues of the cross were carried by. There were visual images planted in my mind with no explanations and just gave my life just a kind of a tilt. So no surprise, really, I became a filmmaker and a storyteller trying to make sense of my world. We went on after that to live in Ceylon or Sri Lanka where there was another strong image more confusion and questions about uh, one day I was being taken to school in, in my usual rickshaw 
I suddenly, it had been happening every day, but I suddenly saw, really saw the reality of what was happening. I saw the sweat running off this old man's back who was pulling me, bare feet running in the dust. And there was another sort of tilt out of balance. Good, I was in a quandary again, images stuck in my mind and heart, and I didn't know what to do with them. But I knew I wanted to do had actually been the site of Hitler's old U-boat training base. It was a charismatic man called Freddie Spencer Chapman. on me. He was an adventure, adventurer. He'd kayaked through Greenland, traveled to Tibet, and in the war was dropped behind the Japanese lions in Malaya as an irregular or special ops soldier to create havoc. Five, two years in the jungle after he was posted missing, believed dead, he was modest and friendly, and his stories inspired us all. Our, all the kids loved him, whether they were girls or boys. He was greatly loved, and he somehow conveyed the message to us that nothing was impossible. The motto he created was, let right be done. He described, it echoes the cry for freedom and justice, which lies like a gold thread through the tangled skein of history. So you can imagine we were all very drawn to exultant visions by this extraordinary man. However, um, I ran away in my first term because I was very homesick, and I thought somehow I could get back to my parents in Berlin. I didn't get very far. Freddie came and found me, and he took me back to his home for tea and told me about uh, the green Tara tanker he had on his wall. I don't have many academic memories of that time, but but certainly the fascination with story grew. After I finished school, I worked in various repertory companies in London and joined the BBC, um, BBC television. I worked for several years in the drama department. I love drama, but I grew an interest in documentary work. I wanted to tell the real stories, but it was to be a long time before um, this happened. Um, this only came about after I made an initial, I thought... <laughs> what was to be a brief visit to Canada, and I ended up living for a year on Cooper Island, the reserve land of the Penelicut people. At that time, there was a foreboding brick building facing you as you came off the ferry. Residential school. I only gradually began to learn about the situation of First Nations or Native American people in Canada, ways of abuse and repression at these schools, taking place, so to speak, in my backyard at that time. Much later, I was involved with a Métis filmmaker in making, telling the Cooper Island story. Um, I was drawn back to Canada, and this time began documentary film work, first in Vancouver and then in Victoria, where with uh, my partner, Peter Campbell, we formed a company called Productions. This was to provide the opening to learn about restorative justice and to get involved with forming the Canadian Department of Peace Initiative. During this time that I met uh, the second impactful person in my life, Jean Houston, through her I met Saul, who was to become my husband. And Jean's work inspired and helped bring into a sense of cohesion the fragments of my scattered life and um, helped me to explore the wider, deeper vision that I, I re really yearn for. The first documentary we produced was called The Art of Compassion, which told the story of two men who were imprisoned in World War II. One, a Jewish Canadian from Montreal who was sent to fight in Hong Kong and almost immediately captured by the Japanese and sent to work as slave labor in the shipyards in Kawasaki. The other is a Japanese Canadian who was imprisoned in the interior of BC after the bombing of Pearl Harbor. Both men were artists, Will Alistair a painter and writer, and Ray Moriyama an architect. Through this program, they met and became friends, and we documented their story in Canada and Japan. The film was first screened in the Canadian Embassy in Tokyo, a magnificent building designed by Ray Moriyama, which also exhibited a series of paintings by Will called Where Life and Death Hold Hands, 
benefited from the healing he affected from his wartime trauma. So uh, Saul and I moved to Victoria and began our work together and um, full time that I now handed over to you, Saul, to begin your story. Well, that's great. Mm. Thank you, Penny. I even learned some new things myself tonight. (laughs) I was uh, also um, a war baby. I was born in 1939. And uh, I can remember as a little one, um, even before the age of five, I remember uh, piling a wagon full of um, clothing uh, that was to go to Russia. If you remember, at that time, Russia was our ally, Second World War. And uh, I remember my parents had a great fondness for Russia at the time. We did not really have any understanding of what the Stalinist regime was really all about. And um, they were very much devoted into activist and and progressive politics, which, of course, has informed my life greatly. And uh, over, we were not um, observant Jews as a family, and we would get all of these as children. We get all of these Jewish holidays. We were the envy of all the kids that weren't Jewish because we went to schools that were were mixed from that view. And uh, we would spend uh, this would be the high the Jewish holidays tended to be in the, in, in the um, typically the high holidays are in the fall in our calendar. And uh, we would go uh, away each time uh, to the country and. We would walk in these fantastic forests where um, this is the time of year when the leaves change in these brilliant colors of everything from crimson to to uh, to yellows and so forth. And um, my father always said, uh, "This is our cathedral." That is that has had an enormous effect on me because my initial work um, world um, activist work was in the in the field of environment. And uh, I've been involved in many issues uh, globally, nationally, locally, um, in, in really protecting primarily forests. And uh, as, as a result, I was given a nickname, a nickname called Sitka, which is named after the Sitka spruce, which is, uh, grows along the outer coast areas, really all of, at one time all the way from Northern California to South East Alaska. Uh, now there are uh, mostly remnant forests remaining, and uh, this is where I started. And I began to realize, you know, war against the environment as we war against ourselves. These things are very, very much related. Then we, I was involved in a number of um, of issues. I realized that. Success really was determined by nonviolent action, nonviolent direct action, uh, which um, was an, an extremely effective uh, method. So I learned firsthand about the values and pragmatic nature, really, of nonviolence. And over time, uh, as uh, I, I've, I, my training is as, an, as a cultural anthropologist worked in many parts of the world, uh, from Inuit uh, or Eskimo area of northern Canada to the Hill Tribes area in Thailand and the American Southwest as well, where I've led uh, cultural tours to the American Southwest through a local university here, the University of Victoria. Now, I was uh, actually um, teaching, and uh, I was doing two courses one was called um, was was First Nations. We call First Nations uh, Native American Studies, and uh, the other course was uh, in the Criminal Justice Program. Both of these things were all about justice and Aboriginal people. A proportionate number of Aborig- Aboriginal people incarcerated, and I learned at the same time about um, the approaches taken. Uh, in terms of restorative justice. This is the first time I encountered restorative justice. Uh, Really, I was teaching. And uh, I realized that this comes out of uh, a Native uh, background, a Native set of ideas 
that um, really are quite common, but in particular, it was the Maori of New Zealand, their practices in terms of restorative circles, uh, that seemed to be a, a valid response to the issue of Aboriginal justice. Then there was the opportunity that came that a training was done at the, at the university where I was teaching. Uh, a training was offered uh, in restorative justice. And I said, well, this is the time for me to, to really get serious and to engage in this work rather than to simply teach about it. And uh, that's when uh, this, this began for me. Some time later, um, remarkable uh, women uh, who together um, had this idea to create a, 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 the idea of a Department of Peace. Anne Mortify, who's a very prominent singer and uh, songwriter and activist, uh, she um, knew Dennis Kucinich and had heard a speech of his. Now, Dennis, as you know, is really the modern founder of the Department of Peace movement and is recognized as such globally. And uh, she, uh, Anne was so taken with this idea, she talked to Dennis and was all fired up about it and spoke to her, another friend, uh, Siobhan Robinson. She is uh, a, a community choir leader. And uh, they got in touch with uh, me. I was in the choir at the time. Uh, they got in touch with Penny and I. And um, out of a very small circle, just like Margaret Mead <laughs> has indicated in that so oft-repeated uh, quote from her, uh, we met as a, in houses in a, as a very small group of maybe half a dozen people, and then it began to grow. And uh, in that way... Um, we uh, eventually formed the Canadian Department of Peace Initiative. And at this point in time, we have grown considerably and uh, actually have, before, um, before the Canadian Parliament at this time, a, mem a bill called the Department of Peace Bill, uh, which is uh, moving its way, uh, hopefully, through Parliament. And uh, so I will say that... Um, was inspiration again International Women's Day it was those two women that really uh, inspired me. Uh, you know, so I, I'm 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 a Taurus, and I you know I'm very rooted to the earth, and I and I uh, especially uh, picked up on this and became kind of I could say the the anchor of the movement uh, in in the first instance, and um, and began to see of course how this whole movement at the heart of it was really the idea of, of restorative justice or in a, in a wider language, restorative practices, because in this we could certainly include uh, uh, peace and, uh, and uh, well, truth and reconciliation uh, uh, circles and so forth, uh, such as happened at a national level, but they happen at a much uh, more local level as well. These are uh, some of the things that, uh, you know, brought me to... Uh, to, uh, to where we are today. So I, um, just to continue then um, to this work, met with, uh, and I believe they're on the call here tonight, um, I met actually only over the, over the telephone or the, the computer, uh, Dot Maver, at the time uh, working with, uh, at the time I think when I first knew of her, she had been, Dennis Kucinich's uh, uh, organizer, camp manager, camp uh, national campaign manager for his um, run-up as the Democratic candidate f uh, for president. Now working in the field of, um, uh, with the Peace Alliance in the field of, uh, to try to create a Department of Peace. But more, I keep talking about Department of Peace, but the larger focus is really on creating a culture of peace both domestically and around the world to make, as Dennis has said, Dennis Kucinich has said, to make peace as an operational principle of society around which society itself is organized in a way that is uh, non-violent, inclusive, and so forth. And uh, we began to talk uh, with our English counterpart uh, about the formation of a, um, an international body to pursue departments of peace and ministries of peace around the world. And um, 
eventually uh, we got together in London, England. It was our first meeting where we formed the thinking very, very large. We, we called it the Global Alliance for Ministries and Departments of Peace. And our meetings that were originally annually, face-to-face -face meetings, we called summits. And so, as you can see, our, our, our vision was grand and has continued to be. And we have been uh, working in many countries now uh, to uh, further this idea, but also more broadly, the whole concept of infrastructures for peace, to build these kinds of structures at the national, international, national, regional, and local levels, at all levels, and not simply involve, involving governments as such, but involving respected people on the ground, involving traditional ways of conflict uh, prevention and conflict resolution, as well as other other forms uh, of uh, other ways of working. And, uh, the Global Alliance has now grown to some uh, 40 countries, really, over 40 countries now. We met recently in South Africa, a very stunning summit. We wanted to pursue and, and promote building initiatives and efforts that are happening uh, throughout Africa. Very rarely heard. We don't hear about that very much. We knew about the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa, of course, uh, another in Rwanda. But the, generally, the, more, the work really, other work on the ground, we heard very little about. And so we thought that we wanted to uh, encourage that in, in, in Africa generally. And uh, we were able to even form uh, the Africa Alliance for Peace, uh, which is our first regional grouping um, for the Global Alliance. These are some of the things that we have been doing. And as I said, the idea, the, the principles and practice of restorative justice, restorative practices themselves, are really at part, at the foundation of what we do, because these processes. Mm empowerment community to resolve its own its own conflicts its own issues it empowers the community broadly uh, through these circles and these circles and I'm going to turn this over to Penny to talk more broadly about this uh, these circles um, are a model really because they okay. depend upon the agreement of all members of this uh, of the circle to they must come to an agreement as to what is the, going to be the resolution. And all the parties have to agree to that, the offender, the victim, uh, and the community mm. members that participate. So I think I'll turn it over to Penny mm. to broaden that field for us. W wonderful, um, Saul. Um, and Penny, uh, just in, in one moment, um, let's do that. I just want to welcome, however, uh, people who have have just recently arrived. If you do have any comments or questions tonight, um, I'm just inviting an, an open invitation here to you to press one on your telephone keypad, and I will do my best to get to you. That's an open invitation for the rest of of our journey together tonight. Um, if you'd like to ask Penny or Saul or both of them a question or make a comment, please do so by pressing one on your keypad, telephone keypad that is. And I love the direction that we're going in. Um, it's so beautiful to hear both of your stories and what has informed your selfless service in, in the world and, and the intersection of peace building, of restorative circles and restorative justice, as well as um, what seems apparent uh, around how we might find uh, earmarked uh, signposts that have been happening in uh, indigenous practices and what's, what has already occurred in many places in our world over time that might give us clues and ways back to uh, what you are already doing up there with your Victoria Restorative Justice Society. Uh, I'd, I'd love to hear more and I'm sure our, our circle gathered would love to hear more from you both about what restorative justice really means. And Saul, you were just getting started on that. Um, and so Penny, if, if you might start uh, by just speaking a little bit 
to what what does this mean? What does restorative justice mean in your knowledge um, that's so expansive and includes so many of the things that, that I was just speaking to, um, including indigenous wisdom? You know, you both have had deep experiences in the world in this way. So um, if, if you might just just uh, share with people what are the what are the practical um, differences between our current system, uh, especially in the Western world, and restorative or even, uh, as Sylvia Klute calls it, unitive uh, justice. Okay. Um, to everybody out there, it's very strange sitting in this little room and realizing that there's a whole <laughs> raft of people listening. <laughs> um, I'll, I'll just briefly say how I got involved in... Um, with restorative justice, um, we, Gumboot Productions had been formed and we were commissioned to document a retreat entitled The Spiritual Roots of Restorative Justice. At this point, I had not heard the word. I had no idea what it was about. We just went out with uh, our equipment to uh, record this event and to do a number of interviews um, of all sorts of people there, which included representatives of the faith community, but also police officers, judges, ex-inmates, and scholars. So I received a crash course in, in doing that uh, documenting of that particular retreat. There was one woman um, who particularly impacted me. She's a provincial court judge from Saskatchewan called Bria Hukalak. She conducts circle sentencing in her courtroom. Um, now, this is not... Uh, very usual, but there are a few judges in uh, Canada that operate in this way. In the sentencing circles, the victim, the offender, the family, community members um, meet with a judge and the lawyers and the police and others to recommend to the judge what type of sentence an offender should receive. The victim and the community have the opportunity to express themselves address the offender, and may also take part in developing and implementing a plan relating to the offender's sentence. Many of the people who come before Bria are First Nations, and she described how she works to honor Aboriginal traditions as well as honoring Western traditional rites and procedures. She permits emotional encounters and allows the time necessary to fully explore the whole situation before her. This is verbatim on my documentary that I made of the spiritual roots of restorative justice of what she said. Quotes, it comes to a stage where something happens, being described as magic, gestalt, shift, depending on which perspective you come from. Spiritual experience. We'll appreciate that is not what normally happens in a traditional courtroom. Well, I was absolutely amazed by that. I was hooked. I had to learn, understand, get more involved with these restorative processes. I was invited to join the Restorative Justice Coalition at William Head Federal Institution, which is nearby to us here. I began attending weekly sessions, which were in fact compassionate listening circles. A group of inmates and volunteers from the outside discussed the meaning of restorative justice and explored such topics as forgiveness, responsibility, victims' needs, etc. It was very organic. Whatever needed to come into the circle came. And hearing many of the inmate stories, it became apparent that in so many cases, the incidents that led to their crimes were due to them having little support when they were young, often surrounded by violence and drug abuse, and they never felt that anybody listened to them. The seeds of Victoria Restorative Justice Society were sown from the realization that if we were able to assist young people or others at the point that their life was starting to go sideways, we could perhaps intervene in a positive manner and affect that shift that Bria spoke of, hopefully before they had to face a judge. Although it is possible, and we do work with some people post-sentence, if they take accountability for their crime and want to make amends as best they can. So this experience, again, was a whole education for me in the prison. There were such interesting discussions and such generous sharing by everybody. 
and uh, is uh, quite an unusual one. It's it's a prison for men, um, and they do not live in cells but in housing clumps. They have a very significant nation's uh, uh, elders in there. They have a sweat lodge and they the um, Restorative Justice Coalition also every year puts on a symposium inside the prison and it's organized by the inmates and the outside members and each year they have a significant those were always amazing people to meet and learn about I'll just mention one uh, whose name is Katie Hutchison who um, had the experience of having her husband killed by a young man in a party that he went to to try and quieten down uh, the people who were having a party in his friend's house who he knew was away. Um, it was a very tragic accident and um, event, uh, and took three years before um, the person who was responsible actually stepped forward. But Katie, right from the get-go, was determined that she was going to have a relationship with this young man, which she did. She proceeded to visit him in prison. She proceeded to get to know him. And when he came out, she and he worked together, uh, giving talks in the schools, in the high schools, about the dangers of these kinds of uh, undisciplined parties and what happened. Marvelous, amazing, inspiring woman. And these were some of the types of things that happened. So that's the sort of uh, prison side of it. Now, uh, the Victoria Restorative Justice Society has um, started very small with a group of four people in our living room. Um, and to begin with, it was fairly uphill. Most of the police were resistant um, and thought it really represented sort of fluffy energy and soft on crime and all that kind of thing. But gradually we developed some supporters in the inside and we began to get our first referrals. And then we connected with the Crown, which here is called the Crown, I think with you it's called the Attorney General. And our case referrals began to increase. Uh, we have now about 60 uh, to 70 volunteers that are trained as facilitators. How, how we work in our particular uh, grouping is that a circle will include our team, which is a facilitator, a co-facilitator, and a mentor. And um, the people or personal people that have committed the uh, that have been impacted, and supporters from both of those groups, members of the community, and the arresting officer. So. Um, in this way, we work uh, in a very thorough way, giving everybody a chance to have a voice, to be heard, and together, to, to um, by consensus, come to an agreement of how best to heal the harm. And um, it's it's very it's a very wonderful experience to be there when that sort of aha moment happens, and you know that person or even an older person has really got uh, that she did has actually affected a lot of people. Instead of being punished, they are being encouraged to accept responsibility their own energies and vision into making things as as good as they can, depending on so that's that's how we work. And after the agreement has been reached, the mentor works with uh, the person who's caused the harm to because a, a timeline is put on the agreement to follow through and make sure that the terms that are agreed upon are undertaken, but also to be there as a supporter along the way. Because as you can imagine, in these sessions, very often um, other things come up and you realize that Perhaps here there's a drug problem or there there's an alcohol problem which have to be addressed in a different way. So um, 
I think that's can probably a description. I, yes? I just, I'd like to ask a question. Um, how how does one go about uh, weaving with you know an inmate um, these kinds of meetings? Uh, where do you do them? Do you do them inside the prison with everyone involved, or is there special permission given for these to happen in a, in a, a, a neutral space somewhere? Um, and how how, how regularly do you, do you do just one? Or I mean, I can imagine that sometimes there's a kind of a, a natural arising of a need for for a series with uh, particular cases. I'm sure over yeah, time. Yeah, I, I think I've maybe confused two things a little bit. There is the work in the prison um, in which we meet weekly, and it's essentially a a discussion and and listening group. Um, and then the this Victoria Restorative Justice Society uh, circles are done in the community, and they can be done at various places. We have places where, where we convene them. Now, with restorative justice, in addition, there is um, victim-offender mediation that can be un undertaken up to and including very, very serious crimes. And we have some wonderful people in the community that do that kind of work. But that, as you can imagine, requires a lot more training and experience than this community group that we're involved with. So um, to answer your question, uh, our, uh, our work in the community happens in the community. I'm, I have got a foot in both camps because I also am involved in the prison. And I also have been... Uh, just on the uh, on the prelimin, um what's the word? I'm outside of being involved with uh, victim offender mediation, but I've never conducted uh, that myself. But I have seen the process and I have seen the results. And uh, Katie Hutchinson's work, um, you know, that was an extraordinary example of working on a very high level. Um, now, in in the on the occasion that. Uh, she and, and Ryan, who was the offender in her case, um, speaking at the symposium inside the prison, we had he Ryan was still in jail at that time, he, but he was in another prison somewhere else, and we had to go through all the fairly complicated procedures having brought to William Head Prison. And so a number of things happened in that. One was the, the very... Uh, very moving example of forgiveness and reconciliation that was happening between these two people. But in addition, the inmates were appreciating this young man having the courage to come from another prison and face a whole different raft of, of inmates who tell his story. So it was a plus, plus, mm. plus experience. Mm. Does that answer your question? Oh, very much so. And um, just again, wanted to pause for a moment and acknowledge uh, this beautiful circle gathered tonight includes uh, representatives of some very important um, selfless service uh, peace builders, um, people doing very concerted work, as Saul mentioned earlier. Dot Maver, push for peace. Uh, the River Phoenix Center for Peace Building. Um, there's there's just some incredible folks gathered here tonight um, with us, and I just want to acknowledge and thank you, Hart and uh, Dot, for your just lifelong work in this world towards peace and the infrastructure of peace, and of course that begins certainly within our own hearts. And uh, I guess that leads me to one of the... It's interesting in, in hosting this, this beautiful continuum of, of, of a series, one of the things that I've discovered most poignantly and I guess most obviously is that this is really in many ways a consciousness shift that we're experiencing or, yeah. or are in the midst of experiencing. And underlying the um, energetic, the uh, I guess the um, paradigm of restorative justice 
and a vision of justice is something pretty amazing uh, that does turn back to the indigenous perspective. And I, I want to pause for just a moment with that thought because I, I see Dot is raising her hand. I'd love to open it up to you, Dot. Welcome, dear. Thank you, Molly. And I want to say gratitude for the series you're presenting. And Saul and Penny, as you are sharing so poignantly your not only your story, but the depth and breadth of your wisdom and experience. And as we've shared so many times together, so many of us who are on this call, we know that education plays such a role. And it is about a consciousness shift, Molly, as you share that. So I, I just want to express my gratitude. It's so, I'm so grateful to be on the journey with everyone and to really be taking such a proactive approach to helping to create the, the culture of peace together. Thank you. Well, thank you. Lovely to hear your voice. I'd like to, of course, also uh, acknowledge Mike Apkin, uh, Dot, your your close uh, friend and uh, my close friend and your colleague of many, many years and many different uh, formations. And, uh, yeah, I think he's on the call, and I'm really happy uh, that to be working with him uh, many times uh, it has come down to us uh, internationally to to you know um, actually concretely move these move this movement forward and without mike uh, i don't know uh, i don't think I could have carried out the work I have carried out without him you know yeah. the the thing about as dot used the word proactive, and this is crucial to understand that this is a movement. That we are forming, which is, you know, we have the exquisitely um, elaborated and funded um, instruments of war. See that now uh, rising again in Iran. It could be another country. And the, the tendency to go to war is still incredibly powerful. And it, it seems to me that what we're trying to do is to present an entirely alternative uh, paradigm of nonviolence. We know that nonviolence works. We know that it is uh, in both in terms of uh, life and um, and material uh, uh, structures. Uh, far, it is not destructive in the same way that there is a much better opportunity to um, reconcile after a conflict between the parties that have been in conflict through nonviolent approaches, know that it works, and it has worked, and we will continue to pursue these, these models. But we want to formalize the structures of peace. All over the world are people now working largely in, uh, in, in non-governmental circles, uh, who have developed extremely refined methods of peace building, and uh, we, you know, we speak of uh, of, of people like uh, Johann Galtung and 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 and, uh, and his group, and 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 his and, and people like uh, uh, a group called Patrir in Romania, and many others all over the world. People who are able to work effectively in conflict zones to create the conditions which are not overnight and are ongoing. One of the things that's really critical to remember, we are not talking about the absence of conflict in the world when we talk about a culture of peace. We're talking, in our view, conflict is endemic in our species. It's what moves our species forward. It provides the juice, the energy, and the tension that leads to positive change or negative change. It can be either way. But when the rules of the game are nonviolence, inclusiveness, passionate listening, at any, any level, whether it be a circle in our town or whether it be international uh, meetings, same principles do apply. So what we're saying is, this is what we're working towards. We, are, we, we recognize uh, obviously, that these many of these conflicts are difficult and seemingly intractable, but in fact they're not, and they can be resolved. But the idea, and that's why we like, and this is again following Galton's lead, 
We prefer the notion of conflict transformation by peaceful means as opposed to conflict resolution because conflict resolution implies there's a beginning, a middle, and an end to a given conflict. In our view, conflict is ongoing. Conflict is creative. And therefore, these, these ways of working must continue. And we recognize and we value conflict when, as I say, the rules of the game are followed. If mm. highest aspirations of all people in all time was towards living in peace in their own families, in their own communities, and in the places where they live. If that is the greatest aspiration, why is it that in so few governments around the world, there are only four that we are aware of, where there, are, there is at the national level either a minister of peace or some, some counterpart like that uh, whose mandate is to pursue conflict transformation by peaceful means. We need this person to stand by the uh, alongside the Secretary of, 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 well, I was going to say the Secretary of War, but I'll say the Secretary of Defense uh, in, the, in the United States or, the, the, or whatever they're called. In, in every country in the world has a Ministry of Defense, which we used to call the War Departments. Only four of them have something like a minister of peace. And our movement is to see that this happens in all nations so that when, so that especially in advance of a conflict where the signs of violence are present, that these ministers, just like ministers of, uh, uh, of, 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 econo- of finance or ministers of environment meet regularly, they would meet regularly to assess the global situation with, again, the mandate of conflict transformation by peaceful means to intervene early in a nonviolent way to prevent the acceleration of conflict towards violence. This is a real dream, this is, but this is also a practical possibility. As Dennis Kucinich says, peace is practical. Just a moment, um, Penny, I'll let you, just, just a moment. I just want to note that we've got quite a few hands up. So, um, yeah, Penny, go ahead, and then then I'll uh, open up the line again here for a couple of questions or comments. I was just going to um, mention this quote from Martin Luther King, which I think is so appropriate. And the quote is, the hope of a livable world lies with disciplined nonconformists who are dedicated to justice, peace, and brotherhood. And I'd add sisterhood. So that's all I was going to (laughs) say. Okay, uh, Mike, you had your hand up. Go ahead, yes. you're live. Yes, thank you very much. And Welcome. So I, thank you. This has been a wonderful program, and I'm so delighted to uh, to hear and to hear Saul and Penny and your stories and your life stories and, and the work that you're doing. And it's, uh, as you said, Saul, I, I'm right back at you. It's been such a joy for me to be working with you over these last, gosh, almost, almost seven years now. Uh, on uh, departments of peace and, and, and international uh, bringing international infrastructures for peace, uh, I just want to really um, uh, emphasize how important restorative justice is and how much it's in line with the whole idea of, of peace. Clearly, it's an it's a actual operationalization of what, what we mean by peace. And I just have to, uh, and, and, and even in nonviolent communications, I think you mentioned that as well. Uh, Nonviolent communications and restorative justice are both about um, not about blaming, not about shaming, uh, not about making you know, uh, judging, uh, but about right relationships. And uh, just one uh, one more thing I want to say here is is uh, in the National Peace Academy, where both Dot and I work in the United States, the uh, the definition of peace that we're using is the definition that's in the Earth Charter. Uh, I hope many of you are familiar with that. If not, Please Google that, the Earth Charter. It's a fabulous document. Um, but the definition of peace um, is that peace is a wholeness, which is, gets to me right there. <laughs> it's, it's a wholeness it's a, that, that's created by right relationships with self, with other people, with other cultures, with other life, with Earth, and with, and with all that we're a part of. So right relationships at all those levels creates a wholeness and that's peace and so that's uh, I think that's 
really important to keep that in mind when we talk about peace in the world and peace everywhere. Thank you. Good to hear from you, Mike. Thank you. Yes, all likewise. Penny. Thank you so much, Mike. Um, go ahead and open it up. Uh, Penny or Saul, did you have a, anything you'd like to respond to, uh, to Mike's comments and observations, or go ahead and open it up to another question? Yes, please do. Okay. Catherine, welcome. You're live. Hi. Hi, Molly. Hi, Penny and Joy. I'm here in Victoria, so it's so such an honor to just uh, started working with um, with Penny and and the restorative justice is something that we're going to be looking into for sure. I wanted to just make a comment on my background as a social worker. And 20 years ago, we started the first circle in in working with in juvenile crime and. All the things you spoke about were certainly rang true that in fact, once they realized that they did have some power in the fact that they could do something about what went wrong, it was huge in the healing process and also recently, I just found out that my grandmother was metis, and in trying to get the background on it, I realized I couldn't get any information. So this really leads me into this whole area of what's happened with uh, Native Indians here in Canada, and I'm very excited now to start exploring that. And what I'm finding right off is this culture, especially in the, with Natives here, is this silence, how they have been trained over the last two generations to just not fight and not speak and not show up. and not complain and that suppression has led to this culture which has you know led to addictions and all kinds of havoc and it, I realize that we are just as strong as our weakest link and if we go to the weakest link that we have in our society we will go there and as Canadians it is our it is our absolute number one must do is to stop and say and listen and speak to that weakest link and find those safe places, those safe circles and ask for our forgiveness and ask what is it they need and how can we rebuild this brokenness that we have to take responsibility for. So to me, that is the beginning of this restorative circle that you're talking about. And I would love to hear more on that, uh, Penny, if you have a minute to do so. Thank you, Molly. Mm, thank you, Catherine. And if, if Penny and Saul, if you're okay with a few more minutes, uh, we're, of course, getting close to the top of the hour and out of respect to people's time um, this evening. We normally close then, but... Uh, you're willing to say a few more words about Catherine's comments, um, I'm definitely game. Well, just to follow up a little bit on, uh, on what Catherine has just stated, is that uh, actively in Canada right now, uh, there is a um, national body convened by the federal government, uh, which is all about truth and reconciliation with Aboriginal people especially dealing with the residential school experience, absolutely dev devastating to uh, all Native cultures. A similar um, history exists in the United States uh, as well. And uh, I think that what we're hearing through that testimony and so forth, um, we are, we're, we're starting to come, and it's, I'm not saying this is... Uh, you know, fully happening yet, but we are starting as a people, as a, as the Canadian people, to finally come to terms uh, and a new accommodation and, and inclusiveness with Aboriginal people while respecting their traditions, uh, which, by the way, are growing more vigorously again in this country after uh, legal suppression beginning in about 1875. All the central Integrating and spiritual ceremonies of Aboriginal people uh, were 
outlawed uh, until uh, basically uh, the 1960s. Some practices continued in secret, but uh, not much. And now we see a kind of resurgence that's occurring. And uh, again, uh, this, uh, this commission, which is basically a Truth and Reconciliation Commission, um, is very much based on these restorative principles. Uh, so I just wanted to say that in in, uh, in response to uh, to Catherine's query. Mm. Well, Penny, did you have any other comments that you would like to share um, as we um, come close to closing tonight? Yeah, it, it is a huge topic, Catherine, and there's a long way to go. I don't know whether it can be achieved now, but um, the the sad thing is that um, in our prisons there is a, a predominantly large number of Aboriginal pe- people incarcerated. Recently we uh, invited a, a retired judge uh, called John Riley, who has just published a book called Bad Medicine, which is quite an astonishing um book about his life and his change of worldview from initially being the youngest judge on a court where he knew nothing about the Aboriginal people that were facing him in the courtroom and really was fairly disinterested, to getting to know them and realizing how he had to take into account um, where the backgrounds of where these people came from into his courtroom and actually contested the the judicial system quite uh, quite strongly and came through um, with a, a real acceptance by the people in this particular reserve that he worked with and was was is now considered an elder with those people so there's little steps forward um, He's now uh, a great uh, proponent of restorative justice himself because he he sees the value of it, and uh, it was wonderful to be able to bring um, him to one of our restorative justice things to actually sponsor him to come what with us all. So just uh, just the yeah, sad and difficult things. Thank you uh, so much, everyone, for coming together tonight on on this very very deep and profoundly important work of restorative justice and and peace building in our communities, you know, in ourselves, in our communities, in our region, and this beautiful world that we share. And um, I really appreciated what. Mike pointed to around right relationship and really um, what the Hunas call pono, to make right, to balance. And I just um, would close tonight with the idea and the feeling that we are united together as a humanity and we know this to be true. And so as we let life lead us and we educate and we practice um, we find that these the answers are coming, and they seem to be coming even more quickly now. Um, as we know, uh, the stakes are high in our world. And I just want to say from my heart to both of you, Saul and Penny, I'm very deeply touched, and I wish we could keep keep going tonight. There's so much ground to cover. And I just invite people to please um, support the Department of Peace Initiative. Um, go to their website um, at departmentofpeace.ca. Also, please um, visit the Victoria Restorative Justice Society website at vrjs.org. That's vrjs, vrjs.org. And there's also a petition um, to, to close tonight, Penny and Saul. Could you please speak to that petition uh, and how people can find that online and any other projects you'd like people to know about or events that are upcoming so that we can stay in touch with your uh, powerful work? 
Well, before I forget, uh, I would like to uh, mention, of course, uh, that the Peace Alliance of the United States, which is our sister institution there, and uh, the peacealliance.org is uh, is that is that website, and I think that that uh, they're highly organized in the United States, and I and I and and are moving forward quite dramatically in many areas. So I want that to be stated as well. Our uh, petition uh, is for uh, is going to the Canadian Parliament, and it is for a, uh, a Department of Peace, and that's that's uh, you know that will be read into the House uh, proceedings. And um, we hope that that will move the bill forward. Our our ambition is uh, initially is for 10,000 signatures. We're at about 3,000 now. So if you go on our own website, you can find links to that petition, departmentofpeace.ca, and uh, you can sign it online. But um, of course, uh, f- for the uh, official petition, this will support that petition. But the online signatures are not online uh, signing is not the same thing. It has to be a live signature to go before Parliament in Canada. So, but still, the support is absolutely crucial that we build the support of people who are uh, in favor of this idea and uh, and and uh, want to see it happen. So, DepartmentOfPeace.ca, if you wish to sign the the, the petition online. Uh, you'd be more than welcome. If you're in Canada, download it and get live signatures, and it'll, it'll, you'll be told there how to return it. Thank you for asking yeah. for that. Well, thank you so much, Saul. And um, just one last note. This, this uh, council tonight has been recorded, and I will have that posted for you to share with anyone you think might be interested in listening in. Um, that will be posted at mollyrowanpresents.com, and I'll also be sending it out in an email to everyone who'd signed up for tonight. Uh, just a note about next week, um, next Thursday, March 15th, same time, 5 p.m. Pacific, I'll be hosting Dominic Barter of Restorative Circles. He'll be coming live from Brazil. Um, and thank you again, everyone, so much for tonight's telecouncil and Penny and Saul. Good night, thank everyone. You. Dominique will definitely deepen this understanding of this this work. So that will be a wonderful program. Thank you. Good night. Thank you so much. Good night, night, everyone. Let's talk way off and uh home.